Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. 212 years ago this month, Abraham Lincoln was born. On this birth anniversary, we'll be looking at two artifacts of his life that show his continuing hold of the imagination, not just of Americans, but of people everywhere. Although both items are related to his death, it is, of course, because of his life that we remember him. Join us for two conversations with Shannon Brown about the Lincoln Funeral Train Project, and with Renette Chilton, author of Lincoln's Great Coat, The Unlikely Odyssey of a Presidential Relic, tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Bullock. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath. Emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you this week, as many weeks since, from the Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters Annex on Oxford Road in Greenville, North Carolina, not from East Carolina University, although it's in the same town, not representing ECU, not speaking for ECU, not cheering for ECU because they're not playing basketball tonight, not uh, having anything to do with anyone else, and likewise my guests will speak only for themselves, as always. It was as we were talking together here last week at this very hour, in fact, that ECU was playing basketball against number five ranked Houston, and uh, the Pirates won. This is the first time in the school's history they've beaten a team ranked in the top ten, uh, or the top five, I should say. Uh, never happened before. The fans, of course, could not storm the court because they, uh, they there were no fans, although afterwards the uh, publicity staff took the cardboard cutouts that filled some of the chairs and put them on the court and took a photo. So the cardboard cutouts got to storm the floor. That was good. And yet after that that high, um, uh, uh, we go to the low of having to 
suspend the uh, uh, suspend the season because once again COVID has struck. Unfortunately, in brighter news, I don't know how much time you waste on social media. Uh, I know I do too much of that. But if you saw the viral video this past week of the hapless uh, boomer age lawyer who has accidentally turned on the cat filter on his uh, camera while trying to appear in court uh, through a Zoom meeting, but he looks like a cat and he can't figure out how to turn it off. Uh, I, I laughed many times at that, and it reminds me that's why I'm doing podcasting and not appearing in front of you visually. don't want to take that chance. Here on campus, the other big news is the chancellor, the interim chancellor, has taken the recommendations of the committee that I've been on, the uh, building naming ad hoc committee, to change the name of four buildings on campus named for people who have long been uh, considered founders of the school, but who were deeply engaged in white supremacy in their day. And uh, we will see what happens. He's taking those recommendations to the Board of Trustees tomorrow and Friday this week. It's February of 2021. And uh, so far, have not received um, uh, negativity uh, through the email about it, or at least not very much. A little bit on some of the sports uh, boards where pirate fans congregate. But others have been supportive. The communications department wants their building to be renamed. They don't want to be associated with the guy whose name is on it now. Uh, but I suspect there will be some, uh, some, some stuff hitting the fan tomorrow when this all gets really out there, and I'll let you know how that works out. And without going on, uh, another thing that, that crossed my social media uh, screen this past week there's an article I'm sure many of you saw by Max Hastings, the very distinguished military historian. I'm a, a big Max Hastings fan. His Overlord book is wonderful. Uh, he's written many, many great books. But this piece in which he describes how American universities have he says, declared war on military history, and he bemoans the lack of military history courses, struck me as, as outdated. I'm not sure that a lot of what he says is true now, although it may have been at one time. But his fundamental argument that there's not, students are, are not taking history anymore, that's true, uh, is because we elitist academics don't like to talk about war, so we don't offer any courses in it. Well, I get to say I'm up till midnight every night working on American military history since 1900, that's history 3122 here at ECU, and I taught 3121, the other half of the military history sequence last semester. We've got plenty of it here, but we still have our enrollments uh, struggling. We've managed to keep ours up by a lot of hard work by my colleagues. But the reason students aren't taking history at most places is because their parents and their school administrators and uh, uh, really the whole world is telling uh, is telling students that it, college is for getting a job and nothing else. And since history doesn't lead straight to a job like a degree in engineering does, don't take uh, don't don't take history is the message they're getting. 
And of course, the fact that history prepares you for most jobs by teaching you how to think critically and write and research and analyze and present. Uh, oh, no, don't worry about that, they say. Um, so it's, it's very frustrating that uh, people are getting all this bad advice, uh, students are, and, and that's why you don't see people taking history. Oh, and Max Hastings writes, for example, so many U.S. universities renounce, for instance, study of the Indochina experience. I read that. I thought, name two. I mean, of course, we have Vietnam courses at most schools. We don't offer one right here, right now here at ECU, but only because the university didn't hire, uh, well, essentially let go of our, our fixed-term professor who was teaching the Vietnam course like they let go or did not replace our previous military historian or a Gilded Age historian or a medieval historian or a French historian. All these chairs are empty now. Uh, that's why we're not offering those courses, not because we don't think students should be allowed access to military history. That's absurd. So it's very frustrating. We're doing our best, and then people are aiming at the wrong target to complain about it. But... Uh, you're here. You're listening, so I, I'll stop ranting about that. I won't go any further. Um, you can find out who's going to be on next, uh, as always, by checking out www.impedimentsofwar.org. You'll see there that on the 17th of February, Brian Taylor will be here. He has a book called Fighting for Citizenship, Black Northerners, and the Debate over Military Service in the Civil War. And then on the 24th, a timely volume by Cynthia Nicoletti, Secession on Trial, The Treason Prosecution of Jefferson Davis. If you're listening to this podcast three or four years from now, this happens to be the week in 2021 when a former president of the United States is in fact on trial. Uh, not for uh, treason, but, uh, but in an impeachment setting. On March 3rd, James Byrd will be here with a book called Holy, a Holy Baptism of Fire and Blood, Bible in the American Civil War. That's a subject I think is way understudied. I'm looking forward to that. Then we've got Leanna Keith, uh, her book about the Republican, the Republican history of the Civil War uh, in a very different era. And then we'll wrap up a month from now with Brian Jordan, A Thousand May Fall, Life, Death, and Survival in the Union Army. We'll have more books throughout March, April, May, but that's what's coming up soon. You can always find out at Impediments of War. While you're there, contribute to the Civil War Talk Radio Book Fund, and I will be grateful. I will use it for all kinds of purposes. Uh, perhaps a new Brooks Brothers blazer. I, I left my previous one in Normandy two years ago. It's a tragedy that I don't like to talk about. Uh, but I can do anything with the money you, you, you generously contribute to that fund. It's not tax deductible. Uh, it's just for my personal use. And thank you all to all of you who do that. Well, we have two guests tonight breaking with tradition here on Civil War Talk Radio because so much is going on in the world of Abraham Lincoln that these two interesting projects crossed my radar, and I wanted to discuss both of them. Uh, the first one is the Lincoln Funeral Train project, and for that, uh, I want to bring Shannon Brown into the show. Uh, Ms. Brown, are you there? I am. Good evening. Well, 
Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. Can we go by first names? Can I call you Shannon? Is that acceptable? Absolutely. Uh, and please call me Jerry. Um, so you uh, sent me an email a year or so ago about the upcoming plans of the Lincoln Funeral Train Project. And then, uh, of course, COVID struck and everything has changed and we didn't get to talk then. Uh, but tell us, uh, what, what, uh, what is the Lincoln Funeral Train Project? Sure. So this all started way back in 1999 when a gentleman by the name of David Clokey up in northern Illinois decided that he was really enamored with steam locomotives and particularly the American 440 style, kind of the American standard locomotive style. And he is a master mechanic by trade and kind of decided that he needed a retirement project. So instead of taking up golf, he decided to get certified in boiler welding and he built a replica of one of these Connectedy Locomotive Works uh, locomotives that were actually produced in 1868, but the same style. So fast forward to um, 2009, that project is completed. He has a locomotive, and of course, that's the 200th anniversary of uh, Lincoln's birth. And so a lot of talk about Lincoln, and that was right on the cusp of all of the beginnings of the sesquicentennial events for the Civil War. And there'd been a lot of talk in train circles and some various places about needing to recreate the funeral rail car or the first car that carried Lincoln's body home from Washington to Springfield. And the original had been lost in 1911 to a fire. Shannon, can I just interrupt with a quick question? Um, Sure. Where did David Clokey keep his locomotive? And what did his spouse think of this? (laughs) So... uh, so I think it was, uh, you know, uh, kind of, um, it had to grow on her a little bit, <laughs> but um, she's pretty enamored with it now. Uh, but he, like I said, he's a master mechanic by trade, and so he did heavy construction and equipment work and demolition work anyway. So he was fortunate to have shop space to be able to build such a thing. So uh, so that was, that was fortunate. Um, so... He starts 2009 thinking, you know, a little bit about, okay, I've got a locomotive. And incidentally, that was the first steam locomotive to have been built in the U.S. in 30 years. And so it was getting quite a bit of attention. And Dave is a Lincoln fan, very much so, very much admires Abraham Lincoln. And decided, you know, people have talked about recreating this funeral car for many years, but no one's actually done it. So... You just have to know Dave Clokey, but, um, you know, he isn't the don't tell me I can't do something kind of guy. So mm-hmm. he started uh, started construction in um, actually started in about 2013, 20, yeah, late 2013. And um, it was really interesting because the whole endeavor was a volunteer effort. So everyone that worked on the project with, I think, maybe two exceptions, were volunteers. And just a labor of love came together, folks, donations, things like that, materials, money. And we ended up completing the full-size, fully-to-scale, as historically accurate as we could make it, replica of President Lincoln's funeral car. And we had it in Springfield, Illinois, in May of 2015 for the 150th anniversary of the funeral. So we were 
pretty excited about that and, and pretty proud of what we had accomplished. So that was the beginnings of the project. And if you fast forward a little further, 2015 after Springfield, we toured. We were in five different states, mostly the Midwest, and we did 12 different tour stops. And we knew we didn't want to make that a continuous thing. We knew at some point that we were going to give the car a permanent home. We kind of jokingly say a final resting place uh, seemed apropos for the car. And so about 2016, you know, early we started looking uh, for a place to do that. And ultimately the car and the locomotive have since come to uh, come to rest, if you will, in Elizabethtown, Pennsylvania. And they are at Stone Gables Estate in Elizabethtown, which is, again, very fortunate. Um, I, I really have to say, I think uh, Providence played a part in a lot of this because the estate where the train is now permanently located contains a section of right-of-way that the original train traveled over in 1865. So what, what are the chances of that? And uh, wow. we're, you know, it, it's just been a, an incredible endeavor all the way around. So this, this replica locomotive, then followed by the construction of a replica of the Lincoln funeral car, uh, now in Elizabethtown, Pennsylvania, but it, it traveled at one point. You said it had to get from place to place. Um, so, did it actually like travel under its own power? Did the locomotive pull this car on on tracks? So the short answer is no. Although that okay. was originally planned. Um, so when we were looking at 2015, we were hopeful to at least recreate some of that 1865 journey by rail, knowing that not all of the rails are there anymore. A lot of it's you know long gone. But we were hoping to make at least a couple of the legs potentially from D.C. to Baltimore and then from Chicago or somewhere south of Chicago on into Springfield. But we were not able to do that. The We could have, uh, you know, wasn't uh, equipment failures or anything like that. It was simply uh, rights and permissions from the railroads. You know, we, we were talking about running a, you know, an 1860s replica steam locomotive with a top speed of somewhere around 25 miles an hour on a mainline railroad. <laughs> so, I, I can you know, see where that could be. <laughs> yeah, that, that could definitely be problematic. Right. We're going to take a short so, break now. We're going to just break away for just a minute. Here's some messages. We'll be back shortly. We're talking tonight with Shannon Brown of the Lincoln Funeral Train Project. And we'll be talking shortly with Renette Chilton about Lincoln's greatcoat. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. 
Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on The Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Tonight we are recognizing the 212th anniversary of the birth of Abraham Lincoln by talking with Shannon Brown of the Lincoln Funeral Train Project. Uh, We learned in the first segment about the recreation of uh, a locomotive from the 1860s and then the actual uh, recreation of the actual car uh, in which Lincoln's body was carried for his uh, funeral, the 12 days of funerals across the country as the the body was brought back by train from Washington to Springfield. Uh, Shannon, how did you get involved in this project yourself? So I was sort of by happenstance. Again, I think a lot of us involved with it, that was the case. I have a background in some marketing and some writing and publicity. And I was, and I'm a huge Lincoln fan, absolutely diehard, anything to do with Lincoln, you've got my attention. And since age of five. And so I was looking one day for some information about what happened to the original funeral car because it, it dawned on me that, you know, I'd never seen it and where was it? And and so I came across not only the answer to that, but also David Cloakey's group's website. And it really caught my attention. I thought, wow, someone's actually recreating this. And so I just reached out to them and said, look, if there's any way I can help and anything I can do, here's kind of, you know, what I do, um, you know, <laughs> for my day job marketing and publicity and such. So if I can be of help, I'd love to do it. And that was six, seven years ago. <laughs> well, that the question you ask is the next one I was going to ask. What, where is the actual uh, car? What happened to it? Yes. Yeah, so it was unfortunately destroyed by a fire in 1911. And it wasn't anything malicious. It was a prairie fire that got out of control in Columbia Heights, Minnesota, um, right outside of uh, Minneapolis. And the car was there at that time because it was owned by a gentleman named Thomas Lowry, who was sort of a serial entrepreneur. And he had purchased the car with the intent to fix it back up. It had been pretty well neglected. It had been passed through several different owners and, and used by railroads just as a, as a, as a day car, as a, you know, way to get guys back and forth to job sites, things like that. It was uh, a little bit sad, actually, what happened to it after 
1865. And so Lowry purchased it and again was intending to bring it back to kind of its former glory, but unfortunately he didn't get the chance to before it was destroyed. That is unfortunate. So you you were looking for that question, for the answer to that question. Um, and I'm sure there must have been many other questions that came up in trying to get the details for this uh, project. Where where did you do research to learn about the funeral train? So I came across, actually when, when I, the, the first answer uh, was, I believe was the History Channel's uh, website. And then once I did a little digging there and I, you know, I came across, like I said, uh, Dave's group's website, I kind of used that as sort of a springboard. And that put me in touch with a couple of fellows who worked with Dave very closely as historians. Uh, one gentleman, Wayne Weslowski, has done over 40 years of research on the car and has built three beautiful scale models of the car very detailed, and so he was a, a huge source, as was Scott Trosel, who wrote uh, a book about the original train's journey. It, it, it's, I'm chuckling because as you say things, I make a note, oh, here's a good question, and then you anticipate it uh, <laughs> uh, each time. I was going to ask about Wayne Weslowski and his, uh, I think it was a one-sixth scale or one-twelfth scale model. It was a very large scale yeah. model. Um, I've, I've seen it, and it, it's just it's if you like model railroads, this is a big model railroad car. It's not a whole layout, but it's uh, it's one big car, and uh, so clearly, so so you worked with him. It's not one of those things where uh, the people building the model and the people building the life size one each have contempt for the other. That no, the not at all. That's not good. at all. Wayne <laughs> is Wayne has been wonderful, wonderful to work with, and he's still. Still involved just as a consultant. I, in fact, I talked to him last week and I had a question. So, uh, very much still involved. He's a wonderful gentleman. So, when when we corresponded uh, more than a year ago, you had written about there were plans for commemorations, uh, reenactment units attending, and all kinds of things. And then, of course, everything was uh, was put on hold by the pandemic, what's the situation now? Are there future plans? Oh, for sure. So we actually did, once the, the train was at its home there in Elizabethtown at Stone Gables Estate, we did put on its inaugural commemoration event in 2019. The mm -hmm. car arrived there in 2018. We put on the first event in the spring of 2019. And then as we all know, 2020 didn't happen. And so, yes, we are very much back in the swing of things for 2021. The dates are April 23rd and 24th. So that's a Friday and Saturday. And Friday will be sort of an afternoon evening event. It's a VIP day. And that will feature some exclusive tours of the car. There's, uh, you know, a couple other things that the VIPs can get involved with in that event. And, um, Certainly reenactors are coming in. They're going to be camping on the grounds. They're going to be, there's a, an, eight, an authentic 1863 cannon uh, that will be there. I've fired it. Lots of fun. Um, I know I have some friends from the, from the 6th New York Independent Battery who are probably listening to this. So hello, guys and gals. And um, so things like that will be there. Lots of reenactors, military and civilian. We bring in civilian reenactors as well. There are some. Folks who just come, we have a group of ladies who 
come in. They are the Patriot Daughters of Lancaster, and they just come in to bring a, a, a wreath or a, a flower arrangement and, and put on the coffin. There is a replica coffin in the car. It would be complete without that. So, yes, um, lots going on April 23rd and 24th. The 24th, that Saturday, is general admission, and train rides available both days. And we have now two passenger cars that go with the train. And those were built by David Clokey. And he's actually working on a third. So you get to take a ride in period replica cars. So they, they again, you know, it's, it's like being in a car from the 1840s, 50s, 60s. And go across that um, right away that the funeral train actually went across, which never fails to give me goosebumps. It just sounds really fascinating. Where is uh, Elizabethtown in, in, uh, for people just vaguely aware where Pennsylvania is and they're trying to think, sure. can I get there? Sure. So Elizabethtown is in Lancaster County, which is uh, kind of south central um, Pennsylvania. They're about 20 miles east of Harrisburg. Okay. So that gives us a, a fair idea. So listeners, if you're in that part of the country, there is something to do in April of 2021, April 23rd, April 24th. It sounds very interesting. Uh, you mentioned early on that this was all a volunteer project. Are you still looking for volunteers or more to the point, looking for financial support? So uh, not necessarily the financial support now, just because uh, you know the arrangement where the, the train is, as I said, it is part of the Estates um, collection that Stone Gables Estate encompasses what's called Starbarn Village. So some listeners might be familiar with that. And so it's, it is all now part of, um, of, of the estate. And there, the railroad that we operate on is the Harrisburg, Lincoln and Lancaster Railroad. It is just a private, private railroad. It's not a main line, but that's all again, kind of part of the estate. But Volunteers, certainly for the events, if folks are reenactors, military or civilian, or even if they are just wanting to kind of come out and, you know, help park cars, uh, certainly we're, we're always happy to have volunteers helping out. Well, it sounds like a wonderful event and a, a, a great project, and I wish you success with the Lincoln Funeral Train project. It's definitely something I will have on my calendar next time I'm up in Pennsylvania will want to go by and uh, check this out for sure. Uh, Shannon, thank you so much for joining us today on Civil War Talk Radio. My pleasure, Jerry. Thank you. Uh, listeners, that sounds like something uh, worth checking out. Uh, something else worth checking out is the uh, remarkable story of the greatcoat worn by Abraham Lincoln uh, at his second inaugural uh, address, and then worn to Ford's Theater on the, the fateful night in April 1865. Mm-hmm. Uh, to learn about this story, uh, I came across in the ECU's library one day a book called Lincoln's Great Coat, The Unlikely Odyssey of a Presidential Relic, and it moved me to contact the author, Renette G. Chilton, who uh, I hope joins us now. Uh, Renette, are you there? Yes, I am. Welcome, welcome back. Thank you. Uh, welcome to the show. So, uh, this is an unusual book and an unusual story. Uh, 
the first thing that that uh, I noticed in starting to read it was that uh, you at one time uh, or you worked for Brooks Brothers, who made the coat, and uh, that answers the obvious question people often start with: you know, how do you get interested in this? Uh, but uh, tell me a little bit about uh, your connection to Brooks Brothers and Brooks Brothers' connection to uh, Lincoln and the Civil War. Certainly. Um, I, I have a background in uh, teaching, and I segued into Brooks Brothers many years ago and spent most of my tenure there as a corporate trainer. Uh, it was there uh, during my tenure with Brooks Brothers that I became intrigued uh, with the coat that it created for Abraham Lincoln's second inauguration. Uh, as most may know, Brooks Brothers is a very old retailer. It's been around since 1818, and it's clothed many uh, United States presidents and captains of industry. But they still consider uh, uh, Abraham Lincoln to be uh, its most, what they call, illustrious uh, customer. Uh, Brooks Brothers crafted this beautiful uh, garment for Abraham Lincoln's second inauguration. And what made the coat um, of what we call a particular design was that its silk embroidered lining uh, contained an eagle with outstretched wings. And in its beak, uh, it bore the banner, One Country, One Destiny, which was a fitting declaration in 1865. Uh, sadly, uh, as you alluded to, uh, um, Abraham Lincoln wore the coat to Ford's Theater on April 14, 1865, and it is considered by many today to be an assassination relic. But it was there during my tenure that I became intrigued with the coat's journey. I had learned that the coat returned to Ford's Theater in 1968 when the um, theater reopened after being closed for 103 years. And I began to wonder what happened to the coat during those 103 years. Uh, something, where did it go? Where did it rest? Was there any um, controversy about it, et cetera, et cetera? And so I began to dig and I like to say that I started to dig so deep that I fell into the hole and said, thought, wow, there's, there's a story here, and I think I can tell it. Well, that's certainly how many of us do history. You start getting curious about something, and you, you, you fall into that hole. Uh, the, the first question that comes to mind is, is the moment, uh, you know, on, on the night of the, the assassination, uh, the doctors, of course, removed Lincoln's clothing, uh, took him to the Peterson house uh, across the street from Ford's Theater, where he lay on his deathbed, uh, and then removed his clothing. And uh, where did it go, like, that very night? What happened immediately to, to the coat he was wearing? Well, it stayed there. Um, his clothing and, and other items uh, stayed uh, in the Peterson house, particularly in a room that... William Clark, who was a young clerk, young government clerk, he was renting the room uh, in which Lincoln died, but Clark was out for the evening. And um, he, what he did was he eventually returned the garment, uh, including the suit that Abraham Lincoln wore as well, to Robert Lincoln. 
And he mentioned that in a letter to his sister, Ida, which he wrote on the day of Lincoln's uh, funeral, April uh, 19th. Um, what's very significant about that is that um, there were a lot of relic hunters that appeared at the Peterson house uh, looking for a memento from the great emancipator. And uh, Willie Clark was, um, you know, he, he hid the, the, the clothing from these relic uh, seekers and returned them sometime after the 19th of April um, to, to Robert Lincoln, as he said in his letter, the one most justly entitled to them. So the, the coat ends up back with the Lincoln family. Mm-hmm. And uh, as as your book describes, Mary Lincoln ends up giving away a lot of the things that she had in the White House. She clearly was not uh, not herself in those days after the assassination. And the the coat ends up in the hands of uh, White House uh, doorman Alfonso Don. Mm-hmm. Uh, he and then I'm, I'm abbreviating because I want to make sure we get through. Uh, the questions that will come up to many people. In fact, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Uh, who was Alfonso Don that he should get this coat from Mary Lincoln? Uh, we'll take a break here and come back on that question in just a moment. I'm talking now uh, with Raynette Chilton, author of Lincoln's Great Coat, The Unlikely Odyssey of a Presidential Relic. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand, all from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking with Renette G. Chilton, author of Lincoln's Great Coat, The Unlikely Odyssey of a Presidential Relic. It turns out that the 
coat that Lincoln wore to his second inauguration and to Ford's Theater uh, was custom-made by Brooks Brothers, the famous uh, American clothing maker, and that after his death, Mary Lincoln gave the coat and some other items of clothing to uh, to Alfonso Don. Uh, that seems... Was he just a random guy around the White House? Did he have a connection with the family? Uh, yes, he most certainly did, even though he by all accounts, didn't know the Lincolns very long. Uh, Alfonso Don was a Washington City uh, policeman, and he and three other associates um, were ordered to go to the executive mansion, as the White House was called back then, uh, in November of 1864. They were assigned to guard the president round the clock. Um the president finally acquiesced to the, to the demands of uh, Marshall Lamon and others, including his wife, uh, to have some security protection. And Alfonso Don was one of the original uh, men from the force to protect him. However, just after two months, in January of 1865, Don abruptly resigned from the force and took the, mo- the coveted position as a doorkeeper at the executive mansion. He would hold that position um, from Abraham Lincoln's second uh, presidency and through Grover Lincoln's first administration. So uh, he began. Pardon me. No, no, go ahead. Uh, so, yeah. so you said Grover Cleveland. He he was he, so he was there a long time. Yes, he most certainly was. He okay. was, and um, so he it was a nice uh, um, career for him. Uh, what I think endeared him to the Lincolns was Alfonso Don's kindness, uh, by all accounts, to the Lincolns' youngest son, Tad. He was. Uh, barely 12 years old, and on the night of Abraham Lincoln's assassination, Alfonso Don had taken um, Tad to Grover's Theater um, for a play there, and it was at the play that uh, the theater manager came out to announce that the president had been shot, and Don, Alfonso Don, and another colleague took young Tad back to the executive mansion um, and comforted him throughout the evening. And I, I believe that may have endeared him to perhaps Mary Lincoln, who was the one who bequeathed the gift to him. Now, it was interesting that he didn't, although she gave him the, the clothes, the ownership of them, he didn't actually get the clothes physically because they were link, Mary Lincoln lent them to Matthew Wilson, the the, the painter who was painting a portrait of Lincoln, and that struck a chord with me because the Matthew Wilson who painted the last life portrait of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, one of his paintings was for many years on display at the Lincoln Museum in Fort Wayne, Indiana, the Lincoln National. Life uh, Company's museum, where I worked for a long time. So I saw that painting every day. Uh, and uh, in fact, it was good to see you use a number of images from the Lincoln Foundation collection uh, that, that I, I remember fondly. But it was like an all-star account uh, of, of artists. The clothing goes from Matthew Wilson, and he lends it to Vinnie Ream, the 
mm-hmm. uh, the sculptor who creates the bust of Lincoln for the U.S. Capitol. Uh, these clothes seem to almost have a life of their own. Uh, eventually, Don does get them back, does he not? That's correct. By all accounts, he got them back in in the early 1870s um, after Green's um, statue of Lincoln was unveiled in the Capitol Rotunda in 1871. And throughout the next uh, decade, um, one sees the strong sentimental attachment that he had uh, to the clothing. Um, P.T. Barnum, according to Don's heirs, offered to buy the collection from Alfonso Don for $20,000, but he rejected it. And to put that in perspective, Alfonso Don was earning about twelve hundred dollars a year uh, when that during that time when that offer was made. According to his nephew, he turned down um, the lure of uh, of, a, of living in a big brick house uh, for the relics. And um, the family, through affidavits and letters and co- correspondence that they had written, uh, Alfonso, nothing could induce him to part with him uh, to part with the clothing that he. Um, stayed true to Mary Lincoln's wish to, as she said, as she wrote in her letter, retain them always in memory of the best and noblest man who ever lived. So he he was doing the right thing by mm-hmm. by Mary Lincoln. She didn't give them to him to use to raise money. So he holds on to them the rest of his life, uh, which sadly did not last that long. They end up being inherited by his, his uh, son and daughter-in-law. Much of the rest of the next uh, 80 years of the story is of the the descendants trying to part with the clothes, not not to uh, sell them for profit, but to get them to somewhere where the American public can, can uh, see them appropriately. Mm-hmm. You'd think that'd be an easy thing to do. You'd think, uh, hey, I've got this incredible relic. Uh, doesn't some museum want this amazing uh, relic? But it doesn't work. It's not very easy, is it? No, and one would think it would have been easy. And um, they start. They began uh, in the early 1900s with the uh, with a proposal. A congressman proposed a bill to buy the relics for seventy five hundred dollars uh, to be placed in the Lincoln Memorial, and that bill never got out of committee. Um, they then went on to approach the Smithsonian Institution, and in fact, um, the Smithsonian Institution would turn down the offer five times throughout the next um, 60 years, 50-plus years, um, to acquire the, turn down the offer to acquire the clothing for its collection. Now, it um, sounds to me, you describe uh, Robert Lincoln getting involved at this point, mm-hmm. uh, that the letter he wrote to the Smithsonian, mm-hmm. it sounded very much like Robert uh, to me. Uh, he gums up the works a little bit. What, what did he say? Well, uh, the the clothing was left to, after Alfonso Don died, the clothing uh, was left to his son and daughter-in-law, uh, Frank by 1920, uh, Frank, Alfonso's Don's son, had died. And so his widow 
uh, Catherine was very much in need of funds. So she, through an agent, approached the Smithsonian Institution about um, having a patron purchase the clothing and, uh, in essence, the patron would donate the clothing to the Smithsonian. The Smithsonian examined the evidence. They examined the clothing. They examined the supporting documentation. That included letters Mary Lincoln had written to Alfonso Don, one of which was on morning stationery. And they were very much impressed. The curator felt that, um, that the clothing bear, as he said, it bears every evidence of the antiquity that's assigned to it. But there was one definitive step, and that was to ask um, Robert Todd Lincoln for his opinion. The Smithsonian sent a letter to um, Mr. Lincoln uh, at his Georgetown home. He had a home in the Georgetown section of Washington, D.C. in 1920, and he never responded. They waited, and they waited, and they waited, and... Um, and there was absolutely no response. So after about 11 months, they tried again. And this time, the uh, acting, the secretary of the Smithsonian offered to call upon uh, Robert Todd Lincoln personally. And that apparently did the trick because Robert Todd Lincoln responded within just a few days. But his letter uh, carried a most um, unusual request in which he said, I have basically what he said personally was that he has no doubt that the clothing uh, is indeed genuine. But he what he did say was, I wish very much that they would be put out of the way of hereafter becoming articles for sale. And I greatly prefer that they should be kept in great seclusion among the possessions of the museum. And trust that. Pardon me, and trusted it may seem proper for the authorities to carry out this idea as far as possible. So great seclusion. In other words, uh, yeah, this is the real thing. But if you get your hands on it, do not display it. Mm -hmm. uh, keep it in seclusion. Keep it in storage. Uh, it's consistent with with Robert's, you know, frustration. So, Raynette, uh, quickly, did were there two coats? Uh, Chicago and uh, the Don coat? Well, at one time, perhaps, um, the coat, the Don collection sold at an auction in Philadelphia in 1924. And it got, it got a lot of press. And immediately after the, after the auction, the renowned Chicago Historical Society basically said, hold up here. We have the coat that Abraham Lincoln wore to Ford's Theater on the fatal night of April 14th, and that um, the Don collection was what they called second best. Uh, there were um, allegations of crooked work, crooked work. The press ran with it. The, there were stories um, throughout the AP wires, throughout the country about the coat. And unfortunately for the Don collection, the Chicago coat would emerge as, in quotations, the coat President Lincoln wore to Ford's Theater uh, for the next 25 years. And while it um, enthralled its visitors to its gallery in Chicago, the Don collection would quietly rest inside 
uh, a bank's a safe deposit box. So the the code ends up, and we have just a few seconds left, so mm-hmm. I'm going to let visitors know, uh, where is it today? The code today is in a curatorial storage facility about 12 miles outside of Washington, D.C. It had been on display at Ford's Theater for decades, but because of its um, the silk fabric declining and the relic and um, and the cloth deteriorating, uh, the National Park Service, its curators, and the Forest Theater Society collectively decided to place the coat on limited display. The last time it was on display was in 2015 on the occasion of uh, the 200th remembrance of Abraham Lincoln's death. However, the replica, there is a replica, which Brooks Brothers did create and donated in 1990, and that's not Ford's Theater, and one can see the replica today. And that is one of the ways that that public historians use to keep something in front of the public eye Mm -hmm. when the original is too fragile uh, to be be exhibited any longer, is through uh, an accurate replica, so we have that opportunity. Option. Well, it is a fascinating story. The twists and turns it takes uh, really do justify the, the the clear labor of love put into discovering it. Uh, I wish we had more time; we would go on. But it has been fascinating learning tonight both about the Lincoln funeral train and about the story of Lincoln's great coat. Uh, listeners, if you want to get all the details, the book is called Lincoln's Great Coat: The Unlikely Odyssey of a Presidential Relic. The author is Raynette G. Chilton. Renette, thank you so much for joining thank me you. on Civil War Talk Radio. And thank listeners, you. as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.